The views expressed on Geeks and Beats are those of the participants alone and do not necessarily reflect the views of their employers. Mm-hmm. So uh, things are good? Things are well? Well, not really. For the first time in quite some time, I am not sitting here with a glass of libation it, because I was on a wine tasting trip yesterday mm. that lasted from 3 o'clock in the afternoon until, uh, well, after 10 o'clock. And uh, I think over the course of that time, I think there was 15, maybe 16 glasses of wine. You're supposed to spit it out. No, no, no. This was all part of a, a very cultured thing that involved swallowing whatever you were given. And then we went out to a four-course meal. And of course, there were two wines at the vineyard that uh, we had before dinner. And then each of the four courses were, were paired with a different wine. And in that particular case, you, you, you drink. You don't spit. You're actually having dinner with a bunch of other people. So that would be kind of rude. So does this mean you're quite hungover today? No, it's uh, I, I've been on sort of a low carb diet over the last little while, so I because <laughs> I was gonna say that wine that'll go straight to your thighs, sister. Uh, so but the, with the with the sugar and the carbohydrates I had yesterday and the rich food and uh, I was in Montreal for a couple of days. There might have been some poutine involved. Man, yeah, I'm I'm paying for my sins. I just don't I don't have a headache. I just don't feel right. You know what? you need a wafer thin mint <laughs> it's only a wafer thin yeah, I couldn't another thing I'm absolutely stuffed that was the last thing that they had at dinner last night and I thought I'm not gonna have this <laughs> I, it was too nice a room for me to explode all over the place another bucket for monsieur and perhaps a hose From the headquarters of Geeks and Beats magazine, now with 1.2 billion subscribers on iTunes and GeoCities, this is the world's most popular podcast with Alan Cross and Michael Hainsworth, featuring musical guest Sting. We're on winter hiatus. We'll be looking back at the best of the big show in 2014. Billy Idol dropped by the GMB studios in 2014 to tell us where those fan-made lyrics to Moni Moni came from. We'll tell you why the compact disc gets the blame for our short musical attention spans. And the secret to a successful marriage has been turned into an algorithm. We'll tell you what it takes to go the distance with your spouse. So sit back and enjoy what passes as our best work while we enjoy some eggnog with stuff in it. We're back January 14th. And now, Alan Cross and Michael Hainsworth. So how long do you listen to a song for before you hit the skip button? Quite a bit. This all goes back to 1986 when I got my very first CD player. It was a little techniques thing. And one of the things that I was fascinated by was the fact it had a skip button. So I could put in a CD. And if I didn't like the song, I just had to hit the skip button on the remote. And I would go immediately to the next song. And for somebody who had been, you know, who grew up with the with the LP, where if you wanted to skip a song, that meant you had to get up, walk across the room, lift the needle up, put it down on the next track, and so on. This was kind of revelatory. And I don't think we've ever really... Well, this was the beginning of a very slippery slope with humanity uh, and our attention span when it came to music. Sometimes you need to be exposed to a song unintentionally a number of times before you 
figure out that you like the song. It's that repeated unintentional exposure. And with the skip button, we could circumvent that. We didn't have to be unintentionally exposed to anything if we had control over the skip button because we could just move on to whenever we found a song that we didn't like. And as we got deeper and deeper into the digital era, we began to skip more and more songs. So there is a, a study, and I've seen a number of these studies, that say that we tend to abuse the skip button or <laughs> make merry with the skip button quite a bit? Hey, I don't know that abuse is the right way to describe it because this is your uh, guttural in instinctual reaction to the track. One in four of us will skip a song within the first five seconds. Right. 29% within the first 10. About a third of us will actually give the song at least 30 seconds. But half of us, almost half of us will skip a song before it's finished. We've, we listen to the song we've, we've uh, and we want to move on very quickly. Okay, but you bring up the whole compact disc era where you didn't have to fast forward or rewind a track. It was so easy to move from track one to track two. That's a similar sort of thing that's built into the streaming music business. However, because of the, the free nature of a lot of those services, you are limited as to the number of skips you can do. So you become actually quite judicious about it. Well, that's true. And I think that's one of the reasons the limited skip function was put into a lot of the licensing agreements. It's uh, it, it's not it's it's even for the um, for the paid services. You only get to skip so many songs per hour. The free ones, I think it's six songs. Right. After that, I'm not sure what it is for, for the paid versions. So um, and you can't skip back which is another thing. Right. You can only skip forward. So uh, maybe we'll give songs a little more leeway before we decide that we don't want to hear them? Well, because you now have a limited number of skips. Writing in Music 3.0, the website, uh, which is where we're getting all of these uh, figures from, if you listen to 60 minutes worth of music, you skip on average... 14.6 times an hour. And if you're mobile, it's actually substantially more than that compared to a desktop user. Yeah, I'm not surprised because you've got the thing in your hand anyway, right? Well, the thing about a desktop user, too, is chances are you're doing other things at the time, so you're not as focused on the music as you would be in mobile, where it's frequently you're running, you're jogging, you're, you're on transit, that sort of thing. You're far more engaged with the music you're listening to. I'm totally um, guilty of this, too, because when I go out running and I need a, a boost uh, or a song will come on that I don't really like, um, I'll skip right away. In fact, uh, it doesn't. Yeah. If you have an iPod or an iPhone, there's that function. It's uh, shake to skip. Have you ever seen that in the. Yes, uh, in the, I've seen that. Yeah. Which is really kind of annoying when you're <laughs> when you're jogging. Never my problem, pal. <laughs> it, it's, it's, you never have to actually even hit the skip button. You just give your iPhone a shake. It's like give your head a shake. Yeah, kind of. So I, I lament this a little bit because I wish we gave songs, you know, more of a chance to burn into our brains, because this is the whole idea with any sort of hit. And, and this is, it's been going on for, for, since we had music publishing back in the, in the 1800s, where you have to hear a song a number of times before you realize you like it. And if you have a skip button, that allows you to skip past something that you don't immediately like, which, which concerns me because does this have an effect on songwriting? Do we have songwriters who are now creating songs designed to foil the skip button? And what's wrong with that? 
when it, when it comes down to it, because I, I sort of treat the skip button with new music much like you treat people you meet. You're willing to give someone a certain amount of your attention or time, but you have to make a decision fairly quickly as to whether or not this is someone you want to have in your life for any significant length of time, because there are just simply so many people out there. Similarly, same thing for music. So you're, you're going to be inclined to go, no, you know what? I'm only 30 seconds into this, but it hasn't hooked me. I'm waiting for a track that hooks okay, me. Okay, so there, there's the problem. It hasn't hooked you because you haven't got to the chorus yet. I'll wait for the chorus. If you haven't hooked me at the chorus, I'm done. But the chorus doesn't necessarily come in in 30 seconds. The chorus can take up to a minute to come in. That's true. And, you know, is it about the beat? You know, is it about, do you put the chorus up front? Do you, you know, emphasize the beat? You know, what about songs with multiple movements that build? You know, maybe you don't like the first movement of a song that turns out to be pretty awesome in two minutes, but you've never heard it because you never give it a chance. Which brings us full circle back to that whole rewind, fast forward idea. And you've got these, you've got an interesting start to this article we found courtesy of Gizmag, which is the social listening headphones, headphones that allow you to share what you're listening to to somebody else you start by pointing out that the first sony walkman in 1979 came with not one but two headphone jacks the chairman of sony at the time didn't believe that anybody would want to seal themselves off and the rest of humanity with a pair of headphones listening to music and he insisted that there be two headphone jacks so you could listen with a friend boy was he ever wrong no kidding that lasted one iteration of the of the original sony walkman uh, in 1979 and uh, then we went back to the or went to the 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 single headphone jack. Take a cassette out of its case, and most people just see an empty box. But Sony saw something quite different. Sony introduces the only cassette player as small as a cassette case. The incredible sounding Super Walkman. So now we've got this thing from a company called Warehouse. They uh, actually contacted me. I was hoping that they were going to offer us some uh, some headphones, but they didn't. We got to give a pair of these away. It's a Kickstarter, isn't it? I know. It's it's, it's a great idea. So the, basically, what it is is a pair of uh, wireless headphones that allows you to pair with another Warehouse headphones user, so you can listen to the same thing uh, simultaneously. It's basically going back to '79 and the two headphone jacks Sony Walkman. The neat thing about this is that if two of you are wearing the Warehouse. H-A-U-S, the warehouse headphones, you've got a, a unique color identification that lights up around the side of the headphone. And if you come across someone else who has these headphones, you can synchronize your colors. And once you've synchronized your colors, you can actually hear what the other person's listening to. I think that's kind of cool. Maybe a bit creepy. Yes. Maybe if you're listening to something that... Uh, you might find embarrassing for other people to know about. I told you the time that uh, the headphone jack came unplugged on my Sony Ericsson cell phone slash MP3 player, and it routed the audio directly to the speaker. And there I was on the Red Rocket in downtown Toronto in the height of morning rush hour. And America started blaring through the, the speaker on it, and I, I had to pull the battery out. I couldn't get that thing turned off fast enough. What, what was the song? Horse With No Name. Uh, 
Christmas. Not a terrible America song. At least it wasn't Lonely People, which would have been really funny. <laughs> <laughs> which would probably resemble me back in 1998. Yeah, yeah, okay. That's fine. That was before you got married, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah, I have no idea what she sees in me. Ever wanted to be a big shot co-producer? It's just like Hollywood. Visit geeksandbeats.com to learn how you can pad your resume with an exciting show credit. We'll even send you the album cover of your episode, suitable for framing in your parents' basement. You're listening to Geeks and Beats on iTunes, Stitcher, and the Bell Media Radio Network. So let's sink another drink, cause it'll give me time to think. If I have a chance, I'd as a woman to dance, and I'll be dancing on with myself. Idol has to be one of my all-time favorite guys of the 80s. I've always been a fan. I was a fan of Generation X back in the 70s, and then I followed him through his solo career through about 86 or 87. After that, he kind of disappeared more or less for a while. He hasn't released an album in uh, 10 years, but he's got one called Kings and Queens of the Underground coming out uh, in October. He's also got an autobiography called wait for it, Dancing With Myself, which is really kind of interesting. I've I've read a number of uh, passages from it, and the guy has lived a colorful life. I mean, he was one of the original British punks back in 1976 and 1977. He was part of Generation X and all the stuff and excesses that they got into. Then, as a solo artist, he was a, an MTV face. There was, uh, oh, all kinds of stories and all kinds of tales of drugs and sex. Then there was a very bad motorcycle accident that nearly killed him. And then this long Long sort of uh, period of being a, a senior statesman in the in the world of punk rock. So we had an opportunity. I, he's in L.A. and after chasing each other around a little bit, we managed to find some time. And uh, I want you to pay attention. Well, we'll talk about the the new album and the new book, which are both, I think, really important. But wait until we get towards the end of the interview, because we are going to get very anthropological and we're going to come very close to solving a very great musical mystery. Oh, I just got shivers. You wrote your autobiography, which is called Dancing With Myself. Perfect title, by the way. Uh, you wrote your autobiography at the same time that the album was being recorded. Did, did one inform the other? Yes, uh, they did rub off on each other, yes. Um, the album itself does have a sort of a retrospective uh, look. Some of the lyrics are looking backwards, although there's just as many songs about today. But uh, yes, they did rub off on each other. I've heard that when people sit down and start actually dictating or writing or making notes about their life in, in order to create an autobiography, you end up remembering things that perhaps you've long forgotten. Did, did that happen to you? Yeah, yeah, there's quite a lot of cobwebs, really. So, um, But it's great grabbing hold of the memories while you've got them. I think that's the thing. That's one of the reasons I wrote the book now was because I could still remember things fairly well and I was just thinking well I don't know how long that's going to go on for so <laughs> so um, yeah there's lots of parts of the book really are grabbing hold of your memories while you've still got them well we were kind of worried about you for a while there was that bad motorcycle accident yeah that was a bit of a wake-up call really I mean um, 
it didn't really have to happen, the most motorcycle accident. Um, and, and there were things like that starting to happen. And I think it was just like the sign, the sort of honeymoon with drugs, really, and it was kind of over, really. And um, But it takes a long time for the drug addict to uh, to listen, really. And But that was one of the, that was kind of the sort of beginning of the wake-up calls, you know, where you knew, oh, Look, look what happens it's, you're getting a bit out of control you know so <laughs> and you sold all your vinyl to get drugs well at some point yeah I think all junkies do things like that you know and um, it's kind of a good uh, a good picture to show you sort of the desperation of it at times you know another interesting thing about the autobiography is that you can look back and see how things have changed with the music industry over the course of your career. I mean, back at the beginning, you had punk rock and the Roxy and, you know, a Generation X and then moving on into your solo career with, you know, becoming a big MTV star when it was really cool to show videos on TV. And now we're completely removed from that. Uh, how have you adapted? Well, I think uh, the thing is you just go on carrying on trying to do music that you think sort of valid or, you know, that you are having fun with it today. So, uh, that's what you kind of hold on to and um, I'm still playing with people like Steve Stevens who's you know I don't know getting better as a guitar player after all these years still getting better so it's there's still a lot of excitement really and um, I think you just hang on to that I, okay I have to ask uh, a question that's been bothering me for a very long time you're the only guy that can answer the question I have been doing extensive anthropological research on the special crowd lyrics that show up every time in Moni Moni. <laughs> and I, it has turned out that there are distinct geographic differences of what people shout during the song. Depending on where you are in North America or Europe, you get a slightly different variation of what they're saying. Where the hell did those special audience lyrics come from in Moni Moni? Well, I, I heard it was, uh, like it started off in like those frat houses, you know, back in the 80s, I suppose. Um, that the frat house started it, and then it kind of graduated to the discos, and then the, the DJs would sort of like, yeah, the crowd would start shouting it, and yeah, that's it. Kind of went on from there. Then, it, then we even well, we even sing that, you know, even sing these other words. <laughs> And uh, I don't know, it's a lot of fun, really. So, uh, when did you become aware of these lyrics? What, uh, when the audience, soon, I think it started along with uh, when we did a kind of the live version of Moni Moni, which got to number one. That's kind of when it started around 1987, 80, yeah, 87. Right, so you know, many years after the song was recorded. It's kind of wild, actually. It was nothing to do with us, so it was <laughs> it's kind of fantastic in a way. Well, it is. Again, it's, it's this giant intercontinental meme that managed to spread without the use of the internet, without the use of anything that we can actually trace it to. So it's, it's, it's fascinating. You could be, like I say, you're, you're a fascinating anthropological study. I think I know why he stopped performing around the late 80s, early 90s. Why is that? The man got married. 
Yeah, I mean, he's... Uh, he's and a, he's still married. Yeah, he's a, 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 you know, one of these survivor dudes. How many rockers do you know got married in the 80s and are still married today to the same person? And how many of them are Billy Idol? You know, <laughs> that's, that's <laughs> really something else. Again, read the autobiography. You'll wonder how the man is still alive, let alone married. When you think fashion, you think geeks and beats. Fresh from the runways of Milan and Paris, it's the G&B Fall Jacket. Great for early morning runs or standing in line at Starbucks on your phone. Show your support for the big show with the only fall jacket you'll ever need. Go to geeksandbeats.com slash swag today. Time now for a Geeks and Beats update. London, Bangkok, New York, Cincinnati. From the worldwide headquarters of Geeks and Beats magazine, this is a GNB News Update. It is the one-year anniversary of two GNB listeners. Oh! Yes, GNB listener Carol Law wants to give her hubby Steve Feek a special anniversary gift one year after they got married. And as we had reported this time last year, they were planning to tie the knot. It's been a year. Who thought they'd last this long? Congratulations. Very nice. So Carol wanted to uh, open her wallet wide, donate the 25 bucks so that her hubby Steve could be the co-producer, get the credit, put it on his uh, LinkedIn page. He can put it on a resume. We'll vouch for him the whole nine yards if he ever needs a gig. Like I said earlier in the podcast, I'm approaching 25 years of marriage. You're at 12 years. So it just shows that that, uh, geeks can have long-lasting relationships. I don't think, though, that Steve ought to suggest that because you made it 25 years without lifting your finger in the laundry department that he can get away with doing the same. Uh, I, that's not what I... No, I would not recommend that in today's day and age. Um, no, please, no. Don't, no, no. Do not hold that against me. All right, so as a man with a quarter century of marriage under his belt, what is your best advice to Carol and Steve? My best advice to Steve is don't try and solve her problems. Just listen to her because women don't want you to solve their problems. They just want you to know how they feel. That's the most important thing I've learned. It took me about 22 years to figure that out. I like to take my problems and and compress them into a dark black ball in my stomach and they're fine there. Women don't like to do that. Don't try and get them to do it. Trust me. Science says that there are two basic traits necessary for the success of a couple. Do you know about this? Yes! I had a headline and I skipped right past it. You, you didn't need to know it, did you? Well, just in case I was doing it wrong. Ah, uh, according to this article, which actually, of all things, comes out of businessinsider.com, uh, pointing out that every uh, day in June, the most popular wedding month of the year, 13,000 American couples get married. And, of course, more than half of them don't work. And often those that still stick together, it's just an awful situation. And so what they did was they reported on this interesting study out of the Gottman Institute, uh, renowned experts on marital stability were devoted over the last 35 years or so uh, to figuring out what it takes to build and maintain a loving, healthy relationship. Uh, They gathered their findings back in 1986 after setting up the Love Lab, which doesn't sound... Kind of sounds creepy. Sounds a little creepy. Probably not as sexy as you might think a Love Lab would be. 
And uh, when it came down to it, what they were talking about is how you interact with your spouse is the primary determinant as to whether or not your relationship succeeds. For example, they point out that you know, the, the husband who's into birds is looking out the window and he sees a, a particular bird. And he says, honey, come see this. And what's happening in that relationship is the husband wants to share something that's important to him with his wife. How the wife responds is critical to helping determine whether or not that relationship has a hope in hell of succeeding. If you get a response back of, I'm busy, I'm reading then you're screwed. But if you're willing to um, encourage and participate in the relationship, whether or not it's something that actually particularly interests you, uh, is a critical component to the success of, of that. So people who turn toward their partners in the study responded by engaging the bidder, the, the person who puts this thing out there, and they support the bid, they show interest in it. Those that didn't who turned away uh, were more likely to end up uh, getting a divorce down the road. Wow, I drifted off about three minutes ago and I'm just coming back. Our relationship is doomed. <laughs> yeah, I think it probably is. Couples who had divorced after a six-year follow-up had the turn toward bias only 33% of the time. Those who still were married had a turn towards bias 87% of the time. Nine times out of the ten, they were meeting their partner's emotional need. There we go. And that goes back to my idea my thesis that women don't want their problems solved they just want you to listen to them guys will consider this whining women will consider this sharing just remember that Contempt, according to the article, is the number one factor that tears couples apart. Oh, wait. Did I, did I just uh, betray something? Yes. Maybe yeah, just okay. a little? Just a little bit. Okay. Should I be feeling insecure here? Uh, Does this podcast only have a six-year shelf life? No, 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 no. No, there's at least seven. Well, and then you get the itch and you start doing podcasts with other people behind my back. <laughs> yeah, with different people and I don't tell you. People who are focused on criticizing their partners miss 50% of the positive things their partners are doing and they see negative negativity when it's not there okay i think you're giving me the cold shoulder i am giving the cold shoulder i got nothing i got nothing to offer on this i mean again you know when you've been married as long as i have you just kind of go with it and uh i've i've seemed to either have reached a level of indifference or i've just perfected my ability to get along with my spouse and i don't need any more tips well then fine maybe we'll talk about something you want to talk about <laughs> you know who we sound like who bernadette and uh howard on, on big bang theory my his mom just died i know mrs wallowitz is dead what are they gonna do about the voice see the question becomes does uh Lori actually carry on with the character because anybody can imitate Mrs. Wallowitz. What are you doing here? I thought you moved out. Oh, yeah, I was going to. And then Debbie and I got to talking over dinner the other night. I didn't have any place to go. She likes having me around. So we both said, why leave at the same time? <laughs> precious. It's not that precious. <laughs> I'd like to back you up, but it sounds like it was pretty precious. I mean, you can find somebody that has a, a similar vocal quality or, you know, given the whole relationship, the arc of the relationship that Howard has with his mom, 
you, you know, maybe maybe she does pass on. Maybe they do kill off the character, and then Howard and Bernadette will have to find uh, new ways to you know deal with their relationship. I don't know. What's the name of the guy who's living with uh, Mrs. Wallowitz and or banging her? Uh, Hang on for a second. That's the third text message we've yeah, got. Yeah, I know. Here. I'm a busy guy. You're a busy. Can you not put it on the? Uh, see, here we are. We're now now we're okay. big. <laughs> uh, the Big Bang Theory itself um, that Chuck Lorre built. What, what's the name of the character that that's living with his mom? Yeah, it's the comic book store guy, uh, and I can't think of his name. Anyway, they seem to be getting along very, very well. And he would be devastated. See, this if you let Mrs. Wallowitz die, then that brings that character's story arc into question. And what does he do? It's interesting. Stuart Bloom, that's his character. Stuart, that's right. Played by Kevin Sussman. Right, exactly. What is he going to do? His comic book shop burned down. Yeah. He's got nowhere to go. Nope. Um, the character is a graduate of the Rhode Island School of Design. Who, the uh, Stuart? Did you know that? The comic book guy? Yes, not the actor, Kevin Sussman. The character. Talk about an extensive backstory. I didn't know that. Well, that's interesting. Well, okay, well, we'll see what happens. During Stewart's first appearance, the guys bring Penny along to the store, and he manages to ask her on a date. They go out a few times until Penny mistakenly calls him Leonard while they're making out. Did I miss that episode? Yeah, I don't remember that one either. Excuse me. Oh, hello again. Hi. Uh, what would you recommend as a present for a 13-year-old boy? Uh, 13-year-old girl. <laughs> but if you're dead set on a comic book, try this. Oh, Hellblazer. What's this about? A morally ambiguous confidence man who smokes, has lung cancer, and is tormented by the spirits of the undead. <laughs> well, if that doesn't make me the favorite aunt, I don't know what will. me? Depends. Do you like it? Wow, it's really good. Yes, that's you. <laughs> that's so sweet. But what if I didn't like it? It'd still be you, but I'd feel like an idiot. <laughs> I'm sorry. I, I still have to come back to the fact that you weren't interested in our relationship conversation. <laughs> Maybe it's like uh, Howard and Raj. They have the same sort of issues. They go to couples counseling every once in a while. <laughs> You know what? There, there's some no, no, real... No, we're done here. I, I do not wish to discuss oh, okay. this with you any further. <laughs> you know, and I... Okay, who, which one's Howard? Which one's Raj? You're probably Howard. I'm probably Raj because I got a dog. Yeah, and I got the big nose. <laughs> Be the only cool kid at work with a G&B ceramic coffee mug. Run the rest of the road warriors into a ditch of envy with your miracle travel mug of traveling. Or make the kid who takes your coffee order swoon with lust over your sporty G&B fall jacket. Visit geeksandbeats.com slash swag and open your wallet. Cut the cord and go to geeksandbeats.com anytime. You'll get the latest episode and links to the stories the boys are talking about. Geeksandbeats.com. Also available on 8-track and cassette. Big data and music. It's just as you feared. We, we've talked about this on a couple of occasions where we've wondered 
with the rise of algorithms and the skip button and all these other things that are affecting human behavior when it comes to our attention spans and the, our willingness to listen to a song for any length of time, uh, things are changing in terms of... Um, See, all this data is being collected, and it's going back to songwriters and record labels and music publishers, and they're using this data to try and figure out how to hook people into listening to songs that they don't know. And if you, uh, PBS has a very good thing, and I'll post a link to it on the show notes, uh, how the music industry is gathering all this information and then using this data to craft as much of a sure thing hit single as they possibly can. So what we're seeing is that people are gravitating to a sound, a style that is very homogeneous. So you think that a lot of songs sound the same? Well, they do, and they sound the same on purpose because the industry is using this data uh, to write songs that they know fit the pattern. In the Lego movie, the Everything is Awesome song, You've heard this, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, the premise is, is that big business has concluded that this is the best song to get you to work and to keep working. Therefore, it is the only song in Legoland that they play. And everyone thinks it's the best song ever. We are quickly moving towards that reality. This is sort of the next generation, though. It's been years that we've tried to compile this kind of data and try to figure it all out. And as we talked about last week, half of people who hear a new song will skip it within 30 seconds mm -hmm. because it doesn't appeal to them. You think technology is going to change that? No, it'll simply speed it up. I think that we will move to skipping a song in less than five seconds. Because our attention spans are diminished or because we're now accustomed to big data providing us with the music we really want to hear? Combination of both, I think. Ah. See, the, I began thinking about this a number of years ago when I heard about a software program called Hit Song Science, in which they fed all kinds of attributes of songs from the top 40 from 1955 forward, analyzing them for commonalities. And then what you can do is take a brand new song, run it through the algorithm, and it will compare that song to all the, the metrics generated by all those other hit songs, and then it will tell you whether the song has an opportunity to have a hit, be, to be a hit or not based on its uh, the pattern recognitions. And uh, you know, record labels know that the public is notoriously fickle and very hard to convince to like something new. So they've been using this software to try and refine certain songs by certain artists so they have a better chance of having a hit. And that was just one thing. Now we're gathering all this data, you know, from companies like Shazam and the Echo Nest and so on. And you know, we're just going to end up with more and more songs that sound exactly the same. All because we've concluded that the best tempo is a certain beats per minute and that at X number of seconds into the song, you've got to have a chorus or a, a hook of some sort and it needs to have a, a bass guitar here and a keyboard there. Yep, exactly. And there are guys, especially uh, Dr. Luke and Max Martin out of Sweden, uh, they know how all this stuff works. They know what turns people's cranks, on a, from, especially from a pop side, uh, from a, uh, a pop music point of view. And uh, this data is just helping turn more and more people into Dr. Luke's and Max Martin's.
this video from that gig in 1972 with the Scottish band Stone the Crows are playing. Yeah. And Les Harvey gets electrocuted. Yeah, this is really sad. He uh, touched the microphone and uh, it was poorly grounded and he got, he got zapped. Um, there was a recent situation, actually a couple of recent situations. There was a band called uh, Immure who was playing in uh, Moscow, I think, just outside of Russia. And again, a badly uh, grounded microphone or a poorly grounded microphone just, just zapped him. Um, I have another one of a guy who, uh, a Calypso singer, and he was singing in uh, Jamaica? No, it was in Brazil. And uh, I posted the video of him touching a piece of metal stage uh, um, scaffolding, and you actually see a puff of smoke. The latest is Augustin Briolini, the leader of an Argentine band called the Krebs. Yeah, he was performing at a city outside of Buenos Aires the other week, and uh, he approached the mic during the first song, uh, during I think it was during uh, soundcheck, and he was he was electrocuted. He, he died at the scene. How is this even possible? I, I understand it's that... It's one bad resistor. Boom, you're gone. Really? It's not a, a function of every outlet has three prongs instead of two? Okay, so the Les Harvey thing happened in Britain, so that would have been a 220 volt or 240 volt circuit. The guy in Brazil, well, that wouldn't be a very solid infrastructure. No, that'd be 110. That'd be 110, but it certainly would it be in Brazil? Absolutely. Are you sure? Pretty much everywhere in the world uses 110 versus Europe, which uses 220. Okay, hang on just a second. Brazil voltage. All right. Okay. One moment, please. Oh, yeah, it is 110. Thank you. Talking to a renovation nerd. Well, actually, wait a second. 110 or 220? Well, 220 would be for your stove, your oven. Oh, right. Okay. Does, oh, wait a second. The tri Okay, wait a second. The shocking truth about electricity in Brazil. 220 volt or 110 volt? Uh, and the answer is, during a recent... Oh, it depends where you are in the in the country. You could be 220 volt outside the major cities or 110 inside uh, places like Rio and Sao Paulo. So the problem is that uh, you could have a, well, you could obviously have an issue. Meantime, OK Go is releasing a new album using DNA. Yes. Ribonucleic acid. I think this is this is brilliant. Wow! L l like releasing an album on cassette or eight track wasn't <laughs> hipster enough. <laughs> I know. So they they found this this guy. Uh, I think it's a guy. Sri Kusuri is the person's name. It's a UCLA biochemist. Yeah, he found a way to take. Well, first of all, the music was encoded into an MP3, so you have zeros and ones. <laughs> oh, are we going to get into a compression conversation? Is your DNA compressed? Yes, as a matter of fact, because okay, the MP3 zeros and ones, binary code, right? Yeah. Uh, it was then translated into genetic code using the A, G, T, and C bases, which are the building blocks of DNA. They use something called uh, an electrophoresis machine. And uh, so they, 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 again, encoded, they, they translated, uh, converted the MP3 into the AGTC bases, and then uh, put little drops of this into uh, vials of water. So, um, 
of one of these vials could actually hold about 100,000 records. So one of these drops of water could actually hold 100,000 copies of the album. So you have a test tube of that, and you sell that test tube, uh, you're selling millions upon millions upon millions of copies of that album, which makes U2's thing with Apple look a little sick, doesn't it? <laughs> I think that's brilliant. It, and it puts you know BitTorrent right out of business if all you need to do is pass along a drop of water and uh, completely. thousands upon thousands of copies of an album are copied. Now, here's my question. How do you play it? <laughs> What's the answer? I, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, all they wanted to do was translate music into the DNA bases. They did that. And if you want to play it back, well, best of luck to you. I think, you know, that's, you know, I really like OK Go. They're really smart guys. They're really nice guys. I've met them on a number, a number of occasions. And it's, they're always looking for something cool and nerdy to do with their music. And this pretty much, I mean, this is going to go, you'd have to go a long way to beat this one. Yeah, but you know what they haven't thought of? Mm. Mutations. Here we are talking about mutants again. Clones. Oh. See, you can copy the music, but it might have a few errors in the copy process. The human mutation rate, according to Wikipedia, is higher in the male germ line, that's the sperm, than the female egg cell. The estimates of the exact rate have varied by an order of magnitude or more. So when it comes down to it, in general, the mutation rate is roughly 0.003 mutations per genome per generation. So I've crunched some numbers here. At 0.003, there are four members of the band. They're all men. If you copied the album a thousand times, you'd be at risk of one mutation. Well, I mean, that's why you have error correction with CDs and MP3 players. I wonder. Yeah, but you've seen what happens. You don't have error correction with DNA. Think about half the people you see on public transit today. Okay, that's a good point. Catch all new episodes of Geeks and Beats Wednesdays on iTunes. And watch for Geeks and Beats magazine on a newsstand near you. To be part of next week's show, call area code 323-319-NERD. Follow the stories on Twitter, Facebook, and get your dose of Geeks and Beats anytime at geeksandbeats.com. The Geeks and Beats podcast would like to thank the National Science Foundation.